He could become the first major professional athlete to own a Kentucky Derby winner. We'll talk with former Major League All-Star Victor Martinez. Plus, the devastating effect of the coronavirus has certainly touched the racing world. We'll hear from one of the tracks affected on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And if you think this podcast is worthy of a superlative, maybe point that review toward the Mensa members at America's Best Racing. They'll need all the brain power they can get. We'll be talking about the coronavirus in a little bit. That is the hot topic these days. And certainly our wishes go out to every one of you that you stay safe and healthy as we get through this public health scare. We've seen some professional athletes, those who bring in the big money, branch out into ownership after their playing days are over. Mario Lemieux has won three Stanley Cups as owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins after leading them to two as a player. Magic Johnson, Nolan Ryan, and Warwick Dunn are among those who at one time co-owned the teams they once played for. Then there's Michael Jordan in Carolina, David Beckham, whose Inter-Miami MLS team just began play this year, and LeBron James, who owns a piece of Liverpool in the English Premier League, who are among other athletes who have become owners. Then there's Victor Martinez, a five-time All-Star catcher and designated hitter, primarily with the Cleveland Indians and Detroit Tigers. He decided on ownership, too, and now he has a chance to win his sport's ultimate prize. Long shot, King Guillermo, going after the leaders, and there goes Chancet on the outside, and... Paco Lopez sets him down for the drive, and he's picking off horses one by one. But meanwhile, up front at 50 to 1, King Guillermo now going to the lead. Here's King Guillermo on the outside trying to pull a huge upset. Chancet is storming home on the outside. Inside the final furlong, do you believe this? King Guillermo at 49 to 1. He doesn't just win it, he wins it off impressively. I cannot think of a former professional athlete who owned or co-owned a Kentucky Derby winner. Maybe you can. Please let me know. But Victor Martinez has a chance to be something of a trailblazer. And we are fortunate enough to welcome Victor Martinez for the first time here to In the Gate. What was it like for you that day? It was crazy. It was crazy, man. We were, you know, with with a lot of stuff. And we were just praying that, you know, he likes the, the dirt. He likes the dirt. And then... You know, I remember having my wife be right beside me on my right. And, uh, you know, in the final stretch, she kept saying, we won, we won. And I was like, no, 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 no. We, you know, it's still, it's still more race to go. It's still more race to go. And she was like, we won, we won. And then, you know, we, I think we were the only people in, in the racetrack that was jumping and, and screaming because he was 49 to 1. <laughs> you know, we have gone through a lot, uh, you know, a lot of stuff with him, you know, special because when he's made his uh, his debut, he made his debut in a fight and a half for lunch on dirt, right? So, you know, he he came out as a big favorite at the race, you know, because of his workouts and stuff. And, uh, you know, it was a 14-horse 
field and he ended up six in the race. So it was kind of, you know, disappointed, but we were happy. I mean, as a family, I have my whole family there. We were having a great time and that was what it's all about. I, I was, I was trying to do that to, to have fun with my family. But, you know, I remember the trainer Juan Carlos Avila was very, very disappointed about his performance. And he was, you know, saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. And I was like, you know, don't worry about it, man. We have a great time, you know. We have a lot of people came to us and say that King Guillermo is a turf guy. He got a, a race on grass. So, well, we decided to give him a chance on, a, on, on turf, on grass. And we put him on a mile race. They've got to come get King Guillermo. King Guillermo, midway on the turn, has opened up a six-length advantage. King Guillermo comes into the stretch with a seven-length lead. Kozalistic and Jolton Joe, second, third. But King Guillermo is who they got to catch. King Guillermo, a popular victory here. King Guillermo by about eight lengths. So and then we were like, okay, I think he, the people, you know, I think people right that he liked turf, and you know, we put him on another race. This this time was a stake. Then he came on third. So you know, he he lost the race in the final four long, something like that. And uh, you know, he, he make another another big race. But I still have my dream. You know, I still have my dream for my my Kentucky Derby horse. And I told the trainer one time. I told him, um, uh, Juan Carlos, listen, I think he deserves one more shot on dirt. So let's put him on dirt one more time. And But listen, he's not going to race any of those little races. Let's put him on a race that gave points to the Kentucky Derby. And he, he looked at me and he was agree. We put him on the Tampa Bay Derby. We, you know, we went out there to try, try him on on dirt again, and then we came out with a spot in the Derby. Now, you talked about your trainer, Juan Carlos Avila, and your rider, Sammy Camacho, are not that well-known on the national thoroughbred racing scene. They, like you, are Venezuelan. Had you thought about going with a more well-established trainer and rider to prepare for the Kentucky Derby? Nope. <laughs> nope. They put him in the Kentucky Derby. they going with him at the, to the Kentucky Derby. That's how it works for me. Now, one of your former teammates, Miguel Cabrera, won baseball's Triple Crown. And another former teammate, Anibal Sanchez, joined the Washington Nationals last year and won the big one, the World Series. Have you thought about what it might be like to win the big one and possibly a Triple Crown in a different manner? Well, you know what? I have another story for you. Since I got to the Tigers right in 2011, I keep telling them I want, I'm going to have the next triple crown winner in the United States. I'm going to have the next triple crown winner in the United States, right? So, you know, I told him one time I'm going to be right there in the Kentucky Derby. You know, one of these days I'll be there in the Kentucky Derby. So I talked to Anibal Sanchez, I talked to Miguel Cabrera, and I talked to Omar Infante that was there by then, right? So I told him, and you know what, if you guys want to come and join me, you, you know, we can put 50000 a piece, and then, we, you know, we put 200000 together, we buy a nice, decent horse, and then our horse is going to go to the Kentucky Derby. But, and they say, okay, that sounds good. But I told him, okay, listen, but we have one problem. You know, our horse is going to come out a good horse. He's going to go to the Kentucky Derby. And they're going to come and offer, you know, uh, let's see, $1.5 million for the horse. And then I asked uh, Omar Infante, I, I asked him, what should you do? He said, oh, Vic, we got to sell the horse. Okay. Uh, Animal Sanchez, what do you think? He said, well, Victor, you know, you invest 100000 you get a 1.5 buy, you got to, you know, we got to sell the horse. So they, I asked Miguel Cabrera, 
And I think, Miggy, you say yes, because the other two say yes. He said, well, Miggy, <laughs> if we have to sell it, we have to sell it. So, and I told him, see, this is one of the reasons I can't be partnered with any of you because I will sell my, my horse. I'm going to see my horse racing in the Kentucky there. That, that, I've been saying this since 2011 that I got to, to the Tigers. I've been saying this for like pretty much my whole career. You can ask my uh, my agents and my you know my people my family around I've been saying this for a, a really long time and just to have this dream this dream come true is just pretty amazing. How did you get involved in racing? Well, well you know my wife and I always like uh, horse racing. Since we came from Venezuela, we have a racetrack back in you know in our in our town, and we always we both like horse racing. But you know while I was playing, we never had a chance to be going on on racetrack at all. I talked to my wife one time. Maybe when when I retire, we we we'll buy a couple horses and then, you know, we, we we take that for fun. We just go out there and watch the races, see our horse our horse race, and go back home. And that's how it started. So last year, you know, I retired in 2018, and I told my uh, my agent that he used to own thoroughbreds in in Venezuela. So he he introduced me to Juan Carlos that he just moved here to the United States. So, you know, last year I met Juan Carlos and, and uh, we went to the auction sale in Ocala. And that's how everything got started. We bought, we bought the horse and, you know, here we are. So I think you have three horses, I believe. The other two are still maidens. They have yet to win. How big a stable do you hope to have? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I've always been a guy since I was playing baseball. That uh, I'll, ta- I'll, ta- I'll take everything day by day. You know, game by game, like I used to say. So let's see, let's see what happened. I, you know, I don't know. Just we'll see what happened. This horse, King Guillermo, is named for your father, who died when you were six. What made you want to name the horse after a dad you hardly knew? Well, uh, it's, it's, still, it's my dad. It's still my dad, and I never had a chance to to be with him. Like you say, I, I, you know, barely get, got to know my dad. So I wanted to have a horse that can, you know, put him, put my dad's name in. And, and fortunately, be, if he can be good, you know, you just wanted to be proud of him. We are chatting with five-time Major League Baseball All-Star Victor Martinez, who owns Kentucky Derby hopeful King Guillermo. Now, thoroughbred racing has endured drug-related issues for decades. Most recently, the federal indictments of three trainers, two of them prominent, Coming from baseball, I mean, you're obviously familiar with fans and media being suspicious of players using performance-enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. How do you put the specter of drug issues in this sport into perspective? Well, you know what? I mean, they, uh, honestly, I don't know anything about about horse. Like I say, uh, you know, everything that I uh, like is just, you know, watching race. I mean, whatever they got to do just to keep the health of the horse, they got to do it, you know, and... Other than that, I mean, I don't know what else can I tell you. It's just like uh, when I was playing, you know, if the, if that's gonna help, you know, they they, they gotta have a clean, you gotta have clean race, you know. You can have somebody just stopping other, you know, you, you, you know, just taking advantage of another guy, you know. You gotta do this, and you know, stay. Everybody gotta stay together in one page. Two years ago, trainer Aidan O'Brien of Ireland, who has the single-year record for most group or grade one wins around the world, ran his first horse in the Kentucky Derby. That was Mendelssohn, who went off as the second betting choice, 
but finished last. And after the race, Aiden O'Brien said that the Derby, the Kentucky Derby, has a different level of intensity from any other major race he's experienced, and he's experienced a lot. He called the running of the race savage. That was the word he used. Does King Guillermo have enough seasoning to withstand that with just one race as a three-year-old? Well, you know what? We'll see. I mean, you know, his last race was three months and a week ago. His last race was in November 30th. So time-wise... He chose it that he can what he can do, you know, when he take a, a good amount of rest. So we'll see what happens. You will never find out when you do it. So I always say, man, uh, you gotta give people a chance. And uh, you know, a lot of people be, been asking me about, like you asked me, um, if I'm if I'm gonna go with the same trainer, if I'm gonna go with the same uh, jockey. You know what, man? Yes, I'm gonna do it, and I'm the kind of people that. Nobody's going to get experience until they get their chances. So here's their chances to get experience. And we certainly wish you and your team and the horse the best of luck. Thank you so much, Mr. Martinez, for a few minutes. All right, man. Thank you. The coronavirus is responsible for roughly 2,500 deaths worldwide, including a handful here in the United States. And it has caused anyone organizing a large gathering of people, like at sporting events, to think twice. We'll talk about the virus's effect on thoroughbred racing when we come back. For the second time in the 145-year history of the Kentucky Derby, the first time being at the end of World War II, we will move the day to the Derby on September 5th, 2020. Just as our company has held the Kentucky Derby in every single year since 1875, the 146 running of the Kentucky Oaks will take place the day before on Friday, September 4th, 2020. We've moved past the fact we are changing a time-honored date that hasn't been touched in 75 years. Had to be done. We own it, and we'll make it a really special day. Well, there you have it. If you thought the coronavirus was just something that was kind of out there, disrupting a lot of daily life, of course, but still not getting to the core of our culture, well, that final wall has been shattered by the announcement you just heard, that the Kentucky Derby will be run not on the first Saturday of May this year, but the first Saturday of September, September 5th, Labor Day weekend. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that the coronavirus has spread globally from China outward and made people in all countries think twice about stepping out of their front doors, much less traveling and attending gatherings with a lot of people. As for the virus's effect on horse racing, as we record this, some tracks are continuing to run with no spectators. But among those not running at all, either by choice or government edict, include Turf Paradise in Arizona, Laurel Racecourse in Maryland, and now Keeneland's spring meet in April has been completely canceled. We'll speak in just a moment with Keeneland President Bill Thomason about that decision. But first, we think it's important to consider whether the animals themselves, racehorses in this case, could play any role in the spreading of the coronavirus. Right now, several global health organizations say that there is no evidence that pets can be infected with and or spread the coronavirus the way humans do. One of those organizations, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention here in the United States, says there is no reason to think that any animals, including pets, in the United States may be a source of infection with this new coronavirus. A decade ago, what's called an equine form of coronavirus was detected in a group of horses in Kentucky. 
There was no mention back then of this strain of that virus being transmitted to humans. So we're not at all downplaying the risks of having large groups of people gather for events like races and concerts and conferences. It does appear, however, that the risk for spreading the coronavirus is not enhanced by the presence of animals like racehorses. Now, with that information in mind, we turn to Bill Thomason, president of the Keeneland Association, whom we welcome here to Win the Gate. You had previously decided to run in April without spectators. What changed between then and now? We've just had a national emergency declared that Trump, the Trump administration had declared. We got on Saturday, March 14th. This is how we've been managing by the hour and making decisions by the hour based on the conditions that have changed in our environment here and our community and then around the country. So we get with all of our in our engagement, our close engagement that we got with Kentucky at Fayette County Health Departments and the people that we talked to from the government, from uh, our government, close government partnerships. And even on that day, things had already changed where we changed all of Keeneland's employees to not to essential staff only coming into work based on the additional restrictions that were coming. Uh, that day, we extended the European travel ban to the UK and Ireland, two of our great partners and people who do a lot with us here racing and sales. Uh, Sunday, uh, the CDC finally came out with recommendations canceling events of more than 50 participants for eight weeks. So it continues to ramp up and we put additional restrictions on our campus. On Monday, Kentucky closes down bars, restaurants. The University of Kentucky cancels closing for the balance of the semester. As we started reevaluating all of the things that we had to do then to, number one, keep every single person who was on this ground safe, uh, one of the guidelines had been about people traveling. They were trying to now, you, you know, the thing that's, that's important around the country, they're telling people to kind of hold in place. Don't make unnecessary travel. Don't, don't take unnecessary risks. And we were getting ready to bring people in from all over the country, people taking care of the horses, not participants, just the, the grooms. And that's what you and I talked about on Friday. Could we keep the grooms and the people who were taking care of our athletes safe? When we started looking at the protocols, which we felt really good about on Friday, and when we reevaluate on Monday morning with all of the additional concerns that were brought in, by the time we got to Monday, we, we looked at ourselves and said, you know what, we can't do that. We stand a chance of having bringing horses in and accumulating a population from around the country that had not been here that would have been coming from places like New Orleans, which is a hot zone in the New Orleans quarter around where the fairgrounds racetrack is. In Louisville, they had already said they didn't want those. They wanted them to delay the opening of their stable. The things kept adding up for us where, number one, we could not feel comfortable responsibly that we could keep all of our participants and the people who were caring for those horses safe under these environments and it was irresponsible for us to bring all these people in from around the country in a place where if something had happened, if there was one case that had been brought into our grounds, it stood the chance of closing down our ability to be able to take care of these horses, and we cannot do that. Well, you you still must have some horses on the grounds, and you need personnel to care for them, don't you? Well, we do, but here's the difference. The, the horses that are here on the grounds and the personnel who are caring for them have been here. 
So these horses have consistently been on these grounds all winter. Uh, the people who are caring for them have been here all winter. Therefore, they're not coming from places where we don't have a history. We don't know where they've been. We know where they've been. They have been in an enclosed environment where these are the same people that have been caring for the existing horse population that's here. We can manage that. We can really take care of those people. We can spread them out in our dorm rooms and on our campus. We can make sure that they're kept safe. And so that's it. We've only got a horse population on our grounds right now of 350 horses, whatever that might be, uh, because they've been wintering here. We can keep that population of horses safe. We could not bring another 1,500 horses here with another 500 grooms just caring for those horses and assure that we could keep that population safe. You talked about all of the other things that have happened in the last few days. How much did Churchill Downs' decision to move the Kentucky Derby affect your decision? No, that was after, uh, really. Uh, we, we knew that they were going to have a they were going to have trouble with the Derby when when these the crowd controls and everything start ratcheting down. We started seeing the restrictions that were coming, uh, just like I talked about, where they had delayed opening their stables already for two weeks. Uh, all of those things were adding up for Churchill Downs that for an event like the Kentucky Derby it became obvious that they were going to have to have some other plan. They're a public company, so they have to keep all those things very quiet. So we didn't know what those plans were, but it was obviously they had something they had to deal with. Uh, for us, that derby thing really didn't have an impact on us. Our impact is solely based on us having a desire and doing everything humanly possible to run those races because we know our horsemen count on them. And the last thing we wanted to do is to cancel racing. And we pulled out every stop. We went through every possible alternative that we could go through. And the alternatives that came to us told us that it'd be irresponsible for us to put our community or our, our horse population in jeopardy. And we looked at ramping it up, doing less races, doing different times. And it's just, it's not that easy uh, when you're, when once again, you're bringing horses and people in from all the way all over the country. So we had to make a decision. Um, we, we had to make a decision that was responsible for our horsemen so they could make other arrangements. We're talking here with Bill Thomason, the president of the Keeneland Association here on In the Gate. In the ethos of what you're saying is the big picture of the industry, because we all know that Keeneland is not just about racing and not just about sales. Keeneland's always had a larger view of the industry. And since the start of this public health scare, racing has been really the only sport running so how do you feel about the opportunity, in some ways a lost opportunity, to sort of showcase the sport in front of fans who might not have otherwise sampled thoroughbred racing? Devastating to us. I think it would have been a tremendous opportunity for us if we could have conducted racing responsibly and safely. Uh, we got a beautiful facility, our broadcast capabilities. There, there's nobody in the country that can do it any better. There is absolutely no question that for the spring in Kentucky, uh, we have lost an opportunity in showcasing the sport. On the other hand, if we're just showcasing the sport and we're not doing it in a way that we're comfortable for the safety of the people who are here and the safety of the horses that are on our grounds, we have to balance those things. So what I can tell you right now, Bears, the thing that we're also doing is now we had to make this decision. It's been the most difficult thing that I have ever done and will ever do in my career, I hope. 
now we start looking at recovery because we do have a broad picture of, of the industry. So we turn our attention now to working with our with our industry partners and our community partners and and kind of reshuffling the, the, the calendar as, uh, if we can, you know, for racing throughout the year whenever we can be responsible and and do everything we can do to stop this virus right now, and which is what we're all trying to do. And then the minute we come out of that, we've got to be able to go into our recovery mode and, and make sure that we've done the right things by our horses and the people that take care of them. Well, speaking of the calendar, it's not clear yet whether the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes will follow the Kentucky Derby in the same order. But if it does, an October Belmont Stakes would rub shoulders with your boutique October meet. Now, given the national disruption in the racing calendar, have you given thought to what adjustments, either in dates or types of races offered, you might make for the October meet? We're looking right now. You know, there's a chance that the calendar, as it falls out for... Uh, what we're all trying to accomplish could still fit in. It's kind of just the one race, you know. I think there's a whole lot of other races that are going to stay on the schedule. I think Churchill said they were going to continue with their normal stake schedule other than the other than the Oaks and the Derby for what they were going to run in September. So, listen, we got a lot of people who are knowledgeable who understand how these races fit together and understand where the horses are throughout the country, and we can't do that overnight. Think about what I talked about on Friday, and I look at where I am right now standing on these empty grounds. Uh, All I can tell you is if we're thinking about it, it's going to take time. Uh, We all care about what happens to our horses and our horsemen and and what what we're trying to accomplish in the industry. And, um, gosh, we've got to figure something out. Well, when you say we all, and this is not meant as an indictment of you, this is much bigger than you, but you've got tracks who routinely overlap in start times almost oblivious to what the other tracks are doing. Now you're asking everybody to coordinate their stakes races so there can be a natural progression. Why should horsemen have any confidence that that's actually going to happen? You, We're all looking. It's one of those moments in time. Barry, I've been involved in the horse business for 40 years. Uh, this this is not different from a whole lot of other industries, the fractured nature of, of different industries. The breeding industry, and there were a lot of different things until mere reproductive loss came in uh, a number of years ago and whatever the year was. And there was one time when everybody said, you know what, we've got, we got survival at hand here. This is, this is not a question of cooperation. This is a question of an industry surviving. Whenever you have that kind of threat, existential threat to your business, and, and we have all learned how interconnected every one of us are with what we're doing, and all I can tell you is shame on us if we can't make that happen uh, as right now, as we finally add certainty. You know, we, we've we not had certainty before. Now we know when this major race, the most important race in the world, is going to be held. This is when we can start those thoughtful plans of how do we responsibly do this together. And one other question, and thank you so much for your time. You pulled in so many different directions. The Keeneland April two-year-old sale is obviously canceled, and some of those horses will likely move to other sales throughout the year whenever those sales resume. But have you considered putting together a special sale somewhere down the line to account for horses of racing age who aren't being put through an auction ring for the next few months? Yes. We're going to be doing the same thing that we're doing on our racing calendar with our sales calendar. We have no idea how long this is going to last. Uh, we got an important sale going on in Ocala right now that we really hope is successful. But even after that, yes, we have horses that have been displaced here. We got horses that have been displaced at a at a um, um, at a Gulfstream sale. So we're going to 
we're open to anything right now. There's absolutely nothing around the country on the sales of the racing calendar that's not on the table for Keeneland. Bill Thomason, the president of the Keeneland Association, thank you so much for your time, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that this all works out. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate, appreciate you calling. Our thanks to Bill Thomason and to Victor Martinez. The indictments of three trainers and others for drugging up their horses won't mark the end of the line for horse racing. The spate of deaths a year ago at Santa Anita won't either. There are bigger omens the sport as a whole is facing. Frank Stronach, whose eponymous company owns several major tracks, is embroiled in a major family spat. If that battle drains the energy from the family, could you see them selling the tracks to be made into condos or flats? And then there's Sheikh Mohammed, the sport's most important figure, who was officially ruled by the High Court in the UK as having kidnapped two of his daughters who remain in captivity. How will that go? It's impossible to say. But if the Sheik's removed from power, will his family stay in the business? Without Godolphin's money, the sport would lose a lot. Frank Stronach and the Sheik could drag the sport into a black hole more than any recent problem the sport has got. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And remember to take a minute to rate and review the show so those geniuses down at America's Best Racing can figure out who we are. Boy, do they need all the brain power they can get. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.